Well, good evening. Oh, come on, you got to do better than that. I, it's Florida, but it's still the South, right? Good evening. Good evening. All right, uh, I'll tell you straight up. Oh, Eric, will you hand me my phone? Because I need to start that timer. Otherwise, it's right there. Uh, we'll be here a long time. Um, so, um, just to clear everything up, I'm not Eric. He didn't have a really bad week, lose all his hair, and aged dramatically in uh, seven days since you saw him last. Uh, my name is Chris Gaynor. I'm one of the pastors at uh, the Summit in uh, Raleigh. I know many of you came from Mercy Hill, and uh, I knew Andrew Hopper and... Uh, uh, Bobby Harrington and Jeremy Dager when they were wee little tots, and uh, so um, it's, uh, man, it's such a joy for me to be here with you tonight. One of my roles at Summit is to uh, kind of uh, care for and pastor church planters and their uh, staff as they go out and their leadership team, so uh, it's just a joy for me to be here with you at the beginning uh, as you're just getting started and just to be a part of what um, God is doing through you. Um, here in Tampa. Um, I, I know most of you are not native Floridians, but you are aware, I assume, that this is hurricane season, right? Do they talk about this down here? Do they talk about it like they do at home? You know, I, I don't know exactly what hurricane preparedness is in Florida. In North Carolina, it is go buy all the milk and bread that you can find, uh, and stock your uh, pantry and your fridge. I'm really not sure how much French toast you can eat um, in one stretch or if you can actually make that on the grill, but uh, clearly that's something that uh, folks at home need. I do know that uh, when a storm comes, uh, the, the nice thing about a hurricane is you get advanced warning. You have some idea of when it's coming and where it's going to hit. Now, that may change along the way, but you at least get some forecast. What I didn't know is that some of the, the worst danger is not the hurricane itself, but the tornadoes that spin out of the hurricane. Have you all heard this? I actually had a Floridian tell me this. It may not be true, but uh, it was a pastor, so um, I took his word for it. Um, and, uh, you know, tornadoes, the thing about tornadoes is that they, they really come without any warning or any notice. I don't know if you know this, but the last two weeks of May, more than 260 tornadoes touched down all across the United States, from uh, the Midwest, from Nebraska and Kansas, all the way across the Midwest, up into the mid-Atlantic, uh, 260 tornadoes, devastating, um, billions of dollars in property damage, uh, communities torn apart, livelihoods lost, memories blown away, uh, lives devastated by this kind of catastrophic storm. But you and I know that not all of life's storms are weather related. In fact, what you know, I'm quite sure, is that we live in a broken world, in a sinful world, and uh, often the, uh, the effects of that on our lives as believers are devastating. Uh, it only takes one phone call and a family is wrecked by the loss of somebody they love. Um, an impromptu meeting with the boss uh, ends up with a redirection or a layoff 
or you find out somebody got the promotion you've been gunning for. Relationships crumble. Children go off the rails. Uh, a visit to the doctor and you discover some debilitating, unexpected illness or disease. Life, life is full of storms, of hardships, of difficulty, of, of suffering. And uh, as believers, we're not immune to that. But we are not without hope. Because the scriptures tell us very clearly that there is for us a shelter in the storm. And what I want to do tonight is I want to try to uh, pull out of one of my favorite psalms uh, what I think is a way for you and I, not just to be ready for the storm, but a way for you, to in, you and I to endure the storms of life that come our way. If you've got a copy of the scriptures, and I hope you are in the habit of bringing those with you when you come to gather, uh, because I know, uh, just like it is at home, that the Word of God is going to be central to your gatherings, and it's essential that you bring it and you be prepared to dig into it. Um, I'm going to say this just, uh, just because I say it everywhere I go. Uh, I think you should take notes. Uh, you should be able to examine what you hear, uh, to discern if it's true and right, um, to figure out how to apply it to your life. You're responsible for the Word of God that's delivered to you every time you gather in this place, so I want to encourage you to do that. Psalm 46, we're going to look at Psalm 46 tonight. Now, if, you, uh, if you're looking at your scriptures in the cross top, it says Psalm 46. Just underneath it are a few words in italic, and that's what we call the superscription. It tells us something about the, the psalm, who wrote it, what it was for. This particular psalm, uh, Psalm 46, the superscription identifies it as a song. A song. Now, it's not conceived primarily as a personal song, a private song, a song to be, you know, sung and meditated on your own. It's actually conceived as a public and corporate song. Now, you might ask, you know, how do you know that? Well, to begin with, it says, the superscription says, for the director of music. And, uh, my best guess is Jamie. I don't, I don't know if Jamie's married or not, but if Jamie's married, uh, his wife would be the only one in the room who has a personal director of music. So, so we know it's for the, for the body. It also says uh, of or for the son, sons of Korah. Now, the sons of Korah were the choir appointed to sing uh, in the temple to lead worship in the temple. Uh, but more than that, we also know this from the pronouns. As we walk through the psalm, 46, you'll see that all of the pronouns are plural. Not a single one of them is singular. They're all plural. So that tells us that this song was conceived and written and prescribed for the people of God to use when they gather together. And so, you know, I mean, you might ask, why? Why, why is that important? Well, the reason it's important is because from the very beginning, God has ordained that singing would be one of the ways, not only that you and I engage in worship of God, but singing is a means by which we disciple each other. When we gather together, we sing out the truth of who God is, not just for ourselves, but for one another. We are, in a sense, preaching or prophesying to one another when we gather by our singing. And so it's an encouragement. Do you know that in Deuteronomy 31... When Moses was about to pour, pour, pass the torch to Joshua, God said this to Moses. He said, write this song down. Teach it to the Israelites 
and then have them sing it together because it will serve as a witness for me. You see, God from the very beginning ordained that his people would sing together as a way of discipling one another. But it's not just for the benefit of us as we gather as the body of Christ. Do you know that 1 Corinthians 14 says that when you and I gather, and it says if we all are prophesying together, now that doesn't mean foretelling the future, Prophesying in in that sense in the scriptures simply means declaring the word of God. The only place where you and I all together at one time declare the word of God is when we sing the truth of God or when we read the scriptures together. And 1 Corinthians 14 says that if we do that and it's orderly and it's done rightly that even the unbeliever will fall on his face and say, surely God is here. So you see, when we gather, I want you to understand this because often in evangelical churches, we, we view singing as the warm-up or we just see it as a way to make sure everybody gets in. I commend you for being here on time. I just was standing over here thinking, it's going to be really, it's going to be traumatic if you come late and have to walk in in front of everybody. You know, most churches, you come in in the back and you can slip in and nobody knows. Here, like, y'all are accountable. Mm, late, mark it down. She was late, late again. All right. Singing is something that you and I do. It's purposeful. It's meaningful. And I just want to say this to you. You need to sing loud. You need to sing passionately. Whether you can sing or not, whether you like to sing or not, listen, the Word of God is clear that you and I are supposed to sing together. All right? So from the very beginning, I want to encourage you as a church just to build this into the DNA. Man, we're going to worship God. We're going to worship God with all our heart. I got two little boys, they're 10 and 11, and I want my boys to learn from me. I want them to learn from me what it means to wholeheartedly declare the truth of God and sing and shout for joy. I want them to, them to see me being as passionate about the worship of God as I am about anything else. I don't want my children to think I've got a higher love because they watch me and they listen to me declare the praise of something else in a more exuberant manner than I declare the praise of God. So I want to say to you men, super important. You ought to be the first ones in. You ought to be the first ones singing. You ought to be the first ones with your hands up because you're leading the way and establishing a precedent for those who follow. But you're also declaring the truth of who, who God is. Well, let's look at the psalm together. Psalm 46. I believe that this song calls us to look above the winds and waves, the storms of life, to see the Savior. It outlines for us four foundational truths, four unchanging realities that you and I need to remember and repeat. We need to repeat them to ourselves and we need to repeat them to each other. This, my friends, is how you and I get storm ready. It's also how we endure in our faith in times of difficulty and hardship. All right? The first one is this, the unchanging character of God. The unchanging character of God. Let's look at it in verses 1 to 3. God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. I, I don't know if you caught it, but this description of God seems to assume the certainty of trouble and hardship. Every descriptor right here in this first verse addresses a human problem. You don't need a refuge unless there's an impending attack. 
You don't need an external source of strength unless you feel weakness. And a, and a helper in trouble? Well, a helper in trouble is just that, a helper who comes alongside us in difficulty and hardship. But that doesn't, the psalm doesn't begin with a description of trouble, but rather a description and a declaration about the nature of who God is. You see, I think that's key because so often what you and I are very good at doing is describing our trouble. We can articulate it to the nth degree. We can talk about it. But what you and I need to do first is we need to be able to declare the truth of who God is. Because let me tell you, troubles come and go. But the eternal God remains the same. He never changes. Listen, he's our refuge. He is our protector and our covering. And I want to say to you that any trouble we face, any trouble you face, is temporary. Trust me, it's temporary, but our fortress is eternal. He's our strength. Listen, some of you know this very well. There's always a limit to our strength. I got two boys. They're 10 and 11, and I'm discovering daily how limited my strength is. I can still take the 10-year-old. The 12-year-old is getting to be a little bit more of a challenge for me. I, I feel my weakness. I, I can't do what I used to do. But listen, listen, what did Isaiah say? Isaiah 40, 31. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who wait on the Lord, they will renew their strength. Listen, if trouble seems ever-present to you, then you need to know that you have a helper who is more present, more consistent, one who's always there. What a great great God we have. Do you know that? Do you know that about him? Do, do you know that to be the character of your God? Verses 2 and 3, the beauty of the character of God is set juxtaposed to the chaos of life. Look at it. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. Listen, the glory of God is always magnified when it's contrasted with the troubles of life. This description of trouble here is, is startling. In fact, if you read it carefully, you might notice that the language here is almost the reverse of the creation narrative. What happens in Genesis? God speaks and the dry ground... The dry ground seems to rise out of the chaos of the waters. And the sea and the land are separated and they're given boundaries. But here, even the highest point of the land is crumbling. The mountains are crumbling into the sea. In creation, the waters are subdued by the voice of the Creator. They obey the voice of the Creator. But here, the waters roar and foam and convulse as if rebelling against the Creator. Y'all, this isn't your sort of everyday household variety of stump your toe kind of trouble. This is cataclysmic, world-crashing-in, devastating kind of trouble, debilitating, debilitating trouble. But even in the face of that, you and I can be fearless when we know that we have a refuge and a strength and a helper who's more enduring and more powerful. Can we just stop right there? And be honest, 
for most of us, that's not what we want. We don't want a refuge. We want God to prevent the attack. We don't want a source of power and strength. Quite frankly, we don't ever want to feel weak and vulnerable. And we don't really want a help in trouble. What we want, what we really want, is for God to give us the kind of life that is free of trouble. You know what we really want? We want a life that's free of the need for Him. We wouldn't say that, but that's the longing of our heart. We don't want to depend on Him and rely on Him. We want to be independent from Him. We don't want to experience need. We, want to, we don't want to be put in a position to have to live by faith. We much prefer sight. Listen, I tell people on a regular basis, I like the idea of trusting God. I just don't ever want to be in the position where I have to. And like it or not, Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. But take heart. Don't be afraid. I have overcome the world. And we need to know, really know the one who's overcome the world. Listen to me, church. He's our refuge and our strength and our ever-present help in trouble. So before you go to describing your trouble, set your mind and heart on the greatness of God and describe Him. Listen, you and I, again, are often intimately acquainted with our trouble, but only vaguely familiar with the character of God. And church, if we're going to be storm ready and we're going to endure, we got to reverse that. We've got to be more adept at speaking the greatness of God than we are of describing the greatness of our trouble. The second reality that we have to remember and repeat is this. The immeasurable value of the presence of God. The immeasurable value of the presence of God. This is in verses 4 to 7. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her. She will not fall. God will help her at the break of day. Nations are in an uproar. Kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice. The earth melts. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. In the ancient world, rivers were a necessary source of life. In fact, life could not be sustained apart from a steady supply of water. Now, we've not advanced beyond that. We still require water, a source of water to sustain life. We just don't depend on a river. But rivers weren't just a source of life. They were also a source of refreshment and joy. You know that. People run to the beach. They run to the lake. They're looking for a place to be renewed by the water. We drink a cold drink. Why? Because we're looking to find refreshment and joy out of the water. Many of the great cities of the ancient world were planted along the banks of great rivers or their tributaries. But Jerusalem, Jerusalem was unique. Jerusalem didn't have a river. You see, God wanted his people to know that he was the one who, who sustained them. He wanted them to understand that he was the source of life and joy for them. All the other great cities, Damascus, Babylon, Thebes, they were all planted securely by a river or its tributaries. They had a natural source, 
but not Jerusalem. Why? Who chose where Jerusalem would be? God did. God planted Jerusalem intentionally in a spot without a natural source of water. Please don't miss this. God did this on purpose. He chose the location for his city and he chose one without a river. They were riverless because of divine design. And that's startling. Because you and I think we have this mindset that if God withholds, somehow we've come to believe it's punitive. But listen to me. When God withholds, he withholds because he's trying to get our attention and get us to look at him. Psalm 84, 15 says, The Lord God is a sun and shield, no good thing. Does he withhold from him whose walk is blameless? Listen, sometimes God withholds from us not because of anger or malice, but because of his great love for us. You know this if you have kids. You say no to your kids not because you hate them, not because you're trying to make their life miserable, though the older they get, the more, the more sure they believe that's our motivation. We say no to our kids because we love them. I got a 12-year-old who thinks his life would be complete if he could play Fortnite four hours a day. In fact, the other day, we had this little discussion. He's taking piano. Both of my boys are. I started playing when I was six, and he's taking piano. And he said to me, he said, Dad, you know, there's, there's really no value in this. He said, I'm, I'm not going to do anything with this when I grow up, and I, I really think it's a waste of money. I said, I tell you what, Hudson, you research the value, the long-term value of playing video games, I'll research the long-term value of playing a musical instrument, and then we'll decide which one you're going to do. Uh, he said, uh, 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 it's, it's okay, Dad, I'll, 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 I'll play. I'll, I'll take piano. Y'all, listen, withholding is not punitive. It, it's, not, it's, not, it's not a sure sign that God is against you. If God withholds from you, he is doing it because he wants you to know that you are sustained and kept not by what he gives, but by him. But he does more than just cause you to survive. He is the reason that you thrive. One of my very favorite Old Testament passages is recorded in Exodus chapter 33. It's, this is the scene where uh, Moses uh, has gone up. The children of Israel, Moses led the children of Israel out of Egypt. They've had this victorious deliverance, this dramatic and miraculous deliverance. And they've come up to Mount Sinai, and Moses has gone up the mountain to receive a word from God, to be in the presence of God. And when he comes back down, Moses has got a mess on his hands. You see, the children of God have uh, gotten a little worried because Moses hasn't come down, and they've, they've come up with a brilliant plan. They take all their jewelry, and they melt it, and they form a calf, and then they dance around it, and they say, this is the God who brought us out of Egypt. Brilliant. Brilliant, just absolutely brilliant. And, and Moses comes down, and, and he is distraught, and God is reasonably angry. God has demonstrated his power, and they are ascribing his glory to a golden calf that was in their ear just yesterday, saying, this is the God who brought me out of Egypt. Don't, 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 don't be too quick. Don't be too quick to condemn them. Just, just look a little bit and you'll discover we do exactly the same thing. We forget the deliverance of God. We forget the work of God. We, we pass it off like it's to be thrown away like yesterday's garbage. 
And God's angry and he threatens to wipe out the Israelites and to make a new nation out of Moses. But Moses knows, Moses knows the promise of God to bring that great and glorious nation out of Abraham. And he knows the reputation of God is on the line. And so he pleads for the children of Israel for the sake of God's glory, not for the sake of the Israelites. God relents. He does punish them, but he doesn't destroy them. And shortly after that, God appears to Moses and he says this, and I paraphrase. Moses, I tell you what, just go on. Just go on and take them in. Just take them on in. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to send an angel in front of you and they'll drive out all the enemies and, and you can take possession of the land without a fight. And it's a good land, Moses. It's, it's a land flowing with milk and honey. But I'm, I'm not going. I'm not going, Moses. And that sounds like some kind of deal to us. You see, what God was offering Moses was success. He was saying, Moses, I gave you a major task to do. You take them in. Go on and take them in now, and your task will be complete. You'll, you will have achieved success. He offered Moses safety. He said, Moses, I'm going to drive all the enemies out. There won't even be a battle for you to fight. You won't be wandering around in the desert, an open target for anybody that wants to come out of the east or the west or the north or the south. Moses, I'm, I'm going to take you in and give you safety. And I'm going to give you abundance. I, I'm going to give you pleasure, Moses. There's going to be milk and honey flowing. It's a good land. And Moses rightly and wisely replies to God's offer in Exodus 33:15. Then Moses said to him, if your presence doesn't go up with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? Do you, do you see this? You and I will not know approval and acceptance of God because he grants us safety or success or pleasure. Nobody else will know you're set apart from God because you have a good and easy life. How do you know that? Because you are surrounded in this city by wicked people, by godless people who have no thought of God, who are living the good life in our eyes. Psalm 73. The psalmist says, hey, the wicked prosper. Surely in vain have I kept my heart pure. You know what changed it in 73? He said, I thought all this until I entered the presence of God. Listen, the way you know God is pleased with you is Christ in you. In his presence is fullness of joy and at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Listen to me, church, nothing is more life-giving than the presence of God. And nothing will bring you greater security or satisfaction than abiding in the presence of your God. And y'all, we need to drive each other to that. We need to call that out to each other. We need to be saying that to our kids. We need to be saying that to our friends. We need to be calling people from worldly pursuit and encouraging them to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. The third thing that this song calls us to remember and repeat is the incomparable work of God. The incomparable work of God. Verses 8 and 9. Come and see. 
come and see what the Lord has done, the desolations he has brought on the earth. He makes wars to cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shield with fire. Come, come, come on, come, come. Let's look at what God has done. Listen, the people in that day had a history of God intervening. They had a backstory that told of the faithful work of God on their behalf. And listen to me, that history of faithfulness is as important for us today to remember as it was for them in their day. You and I need to regularly look at and remember and consider what the Lord has done. Listen, his past works are written down for us because they are a revelation of his character and his heart and his purposes. You don't know the mighty work of God just by looking at your own life and your friends. Y'all, we have the word of God to tell us what God is capable of. You need to know the details of the creation. You need to know the details of the Exodus story. You, you need to know things like the story recorded in 2 Chronicles chapter 20. Don't look at it. Just write this down. 2 Chronicles 20. Go read it tonight or tomorrow. You need to know how God fought for King Jehoshaphat against the people of Moab and Amnon. They never pulled their swords out of their sheaths. God defeated them. You need to know that's the kind of God you serve. He fights for you. And he fights for you without you needing to fight. You need to know. You need to know Psalm 30, 10 and 11. The Lord foils the plans of the nations. He thwarts the purposes of the people. But the plans of the Lord stand firm forever. The purposes of his heart through all generations. Listen, y'all. I don't think there's been a time in my life when I've been more disturbed and bothered by the polarization in our society. There's not been a time when I've, I've experienced more angst about our government and the direction it's headed. It bothers me. But y'all, listen. I got the word of God that tells me, listen, no nation is going to prosper and accomplish its purposes apart from the word of God. I've been reading Isaiah. I've been reading Isaiah the last few weeks, and it's crazy. It's like God's playing chess, and all the great nations of the world are nothing but pawns. He's moving around on his board to accomplish his purposes. You need to know that about your God. Listen, I can believe that in the middle of trouble, God can work in my behalf because there's a host of historical evidence that it's true. And what God did in the past, I can trust him to do in the future because his word tells me he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And y'all, past grace is the promise of future grace. And that's what we need to be telling ourselves and each other and especially our children. Y'all, we have on record a remarkable victory fought on our behalf when Jesus Christ laid down his life, was nailed to a cross, buried in a tomb, and then raised again. Listen, Colossians 2 says, When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive. He forgave us all our sins. Verse 15 says, And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. He didn't just whip them. 
he whooped them and took their guns. He destroyed them. Y'all, he's victorious. And we need to talk about that. Listen, you need to repeat the gospel because the gospel is as important for you today as it was the day you first believed it. It's not old news. It's not irrelevant news. It's not just for the invitation. It is for every circumstance of life. And we need to be calling that out to each other and to the lost around us. Come and see what the Lord has done. Y'all, I, I got to be straight with you. This right here is one of the most convicting things as I preached it, as I preached it to you, as I wrote it. I'm so convicted because I wondered, am I recalling and repeating and celebrating what God has done? Am I talking about how he's delivered me and rescued me and healed me? Am I doing that in a way that would lead my children to trust him? Am I, am I talking about the Am I trying to make a big deal out of him or a big deal out of me? Listen, he must become greater. I must become less. Listen, my children are not benefited by me putting up a front that says to them, I got my stuff together. My children need to know that I am a broken man, that I am a sinful man who is in need daily of the mercy of God, but who's received grace and forgiveness and pardon. Listen, they need to know some of what God rescued me from because they need to know that God can rescue them from their mess. When you gather in this place, if you don't tell your testimony, if you don't talk about the rescue of God, let me just tell you, all you're doing is promoting yourself. If you walk in here and act like you got it together and you've always had it together and God's just so thrilled to have you on his team, you are missing the opportunity to point people to what can really change them and really help them. The fourth thing that you and I need to remember and repeat and remind each other of this is of this, the infallible word of God. The infallible word of God. Now, if you've been around... Uh, church circles for a long time, particularly if you grew up as a Southern Baptist like I did. Don't get all messed up with that word. It just means that God's word is exactly what he says it is. It's true. It's right. It's without error. It is exactly as God intended us to have it. And it is, it is unchanging and forever. Look at verse 10. He said, God says, be still. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Listen, the final word in this great song comes from the mouth of God. But it might not be what you think it is. Hush. Quiet. Enough. Be still. Be still. This is not a peaceful platitude. It is not coffee mug material. This is a forceful reproof. And it is offered both as a command to the roaring waters and the raging nations as well as a rebuke to the fretting of God's people who are caught in the turbulence of trouble. To both of us, he would say, be still. Stop. Hush. Your fretting, believer, is not necessary and it is not productive. To the nations and the wicked, he would say, your raging is 
useless. It will not succeed. I am God, and I will be exalted. I will be victorious over all. And y'all, one day, every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And y'all, that's the ultimate fulfillment of this word in Psalm 46. I will be exalted among the nations. Listen, don't be discouraged. It might not happen in your lifetime, but it will happen. You might not see it in your lifetime, but that doesn't mean God is not steady on course to accomplish what he promised. Listen to me. Nothing is more secure and more reliable and more trustworthy than the word of God. It is infallible. And in a world that is full of trouble, you and I need to know the word of God and cling to it. I don't, I, I don't mean we need to know where it is. We need to know it. We need to hide it in our heart. We need to anchor our soul to it. We need to memorize it. We need to call it out to each other. Listen to me. Your friends and neighbors don't need to know what you think. They need to know what God has said. You and I need to hold it up for what it is and speak it to each other. In a world that's full of trouble, you and I need to hold it and cling to it because what's, what matters more than what you feel is what God has said. Listen to me, life's hard. Life is full of disappointment and pain. Dreams get crushed, and often what happens to us is unjust and unfair. But y'all, the Word of God gives us a hope that we absolutely must cling to. Listen, you're going to hear a, a world of lies. Some of them are not going to be spoken by audible voices, but are going to be uttered by the enemy in your heart and soul. And you're going to be tested just like Adam and Eve were tested in the garden when the serpent said to them, did God really say? Did God really say? Just like Jesus was tested in the wilderness in the 40 days that he fasted. But listen to me, the stark difference is Jesus knew what God had said. Adam and Eve couldn't remember it. And you and I need to be able to call it out. Let me ask you a question. Do you feel unsure about the future? I mean, I'm talking to a group of people who've left family and friends and homes and livelihoods and a church to come down. Do you feel unsure about what's going to happen? Well, let me tell you this. 2 Corinthians 1.20 says this, For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ Jesus. And so through him the amen is spoken to us, uh, spoken by us to the glory of God. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. You don't need to be unsure. God's going to make you stand firm. 2 Corinthians 1, 22, 21 says it. Do you feel alone? Do you feel alone? I, I, you know, it's been, I've been at Summit 33 years. It's been a long time since I've had to go into a new place and make new friends. And I know there's got to be some days where you feel alone. You need to know Deuteronomy 31, 8. The Lord himself goes before you. The Lord himself goes before you and will be with you. He will never leave you or forsake you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Do you feel like a failure? Do you feel like you can't do anything right? Do you feel like there's a trail behind you of misstep after misstep? Well, listen, you need to know Philippians 1.6, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you, will be faithful to carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Listen, it doesn't matter what you do. It's all about what he's doing and what he's done. Do you feel unloved and unwanted? 
Do you feel unloved in the world? You know, it doesn't escape me. I know some of you are single in here. I was single until I was 47, just three days ago. Um, and I know what it is to feel alone and unwanted and wonder, is, does anybody want me? But listen to me. You don't need to be looking to another person to affirm that. You need to look to the everlasting love of God. John, Jeremiah 31.3 I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with unfailing kindness. Do you feel overwhelmed by guilt and shame? You know what? You, you, you're not, I'm not unlike you. There is a trail behind me of failed attempts to withstand temptation. There's, there's failure behind me. There's sin behind me. There's guilt and shame that rises up. But then you need to know, and I need to recall Psalm 133 and 4. If you, O Lord, kept a record of sin, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness. Do you feel helpless and defeated by temptation? You feel like you just can't win. Like, I can't get this one. I can't get over this one. This one gets me every time. Listen, you need to know 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful. He'll not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but will with the temptation provide a way of escape so that you may be able to stand up under it. Y'all, you can't combat the lies of the enemy that say you're, your future is unsure, you're alone, you're a failure, you're unloved and unwanted, you're, you're guilty, and, and you're never going to win. You and I can only combat that when we are able to recall the Word of God that tells otherwise. Listen, you're not going to feel your way into trusting God. You are not going to feel your way into trusting God. What you feel about God is really not that important. You, you and I have got to learn to truth our way in. Can I say that again? You're not going to feel your way in. You've got to truth your way in. In the face of trouble and pain, we need to be ready to call out the promises of God and speak the truth of God's word. Do you know that the scriptures contain over 3,000 promises? Let me ask you tonight, how many of those are you clinging to? How many of those are you repeating and calling out? How many of those are you staking your claim to? Because I just read it just a few moments ago. Uh, in Christ Jesus, all his promises are yes and amen. They're done deals, my friend. If God promised it, it's going to happen. But I want you to hear this. The Word of God is not just important for that. It's also important for the battle that we're in. Ephesians 6, Paul tells us to take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Listen to me. Only a fool walks into battle without a weapon. Only a fool walks into a fight without a, a weapon. And listen to me. A good soldier doesn't just carry his weapon. He knows how to use it. He's familiar with it. He's an adept at it. He can handle it. He knows how it works. You, my brothers and sisters, need to be saturated in the Word of God. You need to arm yourself with the Word of God. You absolutely must hide it in your heart because it is the means by which you and I keep ourselves from sin. And daily time spent in the Bible is absolutely essential if you and I expect to be storm ready and if you and I expect to endure the hardships and difficulty and pains of life. Four things. Four things I think this psalm tells us we need to remember and repeat to ourselves and to each other. These are the things we need to disciple one another in. They are the unchanging character of God. 
the immeasurable value of the presence of God, the incomparable work of God, and the infallible word of God. Y'all, if we give ourselves to those things, no storm will take us out. Let's pray together. God, how thankful I am. How thankful I am that you have provided for us, that you are indeed our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. And God, I pray that we would let your word instruct us how to avail ourselves of all that you are and of all that you have given to us. God, would you use my brothers and sisters in this place to encourage and disciple and teach and train and speak faith into each other so that no matter what storms come, they endure and remain and persevere and are steadfast. God, would you use their delight in you to draw others to yourself? And God, would you change what Tampa looks like and feels like because of how you move through these people in this place according to your great power that is at work in them? We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.